Hello again. Welcome to another edition of Wood Chat, a Forest and Wood Products Australia podcast. I'm Georgia. And I'm Sam. And in our latest episode, we're going to discover details of a recently completed research project that's taken a comprehensive look at Australia's log and wood chip supply chain. Throughout, the members of the research team have asked themselves, are there areas that can be more effectively managed to create improved efficiencies? The team reviewed optimum conditions for storage, haulage and at ports, with their findings now being used to identify solutions for an enhanced and more cost-effective timber export process. Dr Mohamed Riza Ghaffarian, research fellow at the University of the Sunshine Coast, oversaw the multi-pronged project and Sam caught up with him to gain some further insight. Over the past decades in Australia, there has been lots of research about forestry resources, forest inventories, genetics, and also about supply chain. But to my knowledge, there has been no research about uh, wood export supply chain management in Australia. And also we have lack of information globally because most of our uh, researchers in supply chain management, they focus on forest operation in the bush. So the export market was something very interesting to be researching on. Mohammed explained that the overarching objective of the FWPA supported research project was to identify and implement innovative technologies, methods and best management practices to help build an efficient and sustainable forest and wood product supply chain in Australia with a particular focus on exports. And of course, to achieve this, industry consultation would be crucial. We invited our industry partners to set up a steering committee. That was key to us to get the partners involved. We got about 12 industry partners. We basically had an initial meeting with them and asked them to identify the key areas we should start researching. One element of the project was focused on tag, track and trace systems, which are an essential pillar in the supply chain management operations of many industries. However, while they have been well established in forestry between the Australian port gate and international customers, they are much less common between the forest and the port. G.E. Murphy and Associates oversaw the tag, track and trace element of the project, testing the different potential systems and considering the benefits of each to the forestry industry. Georgia spoke with CEO Glenn Murphy to find out more. We have to look at what the current situation is now when logs are exported many of them and definitely the more valuable ones have a tag affixed to them and when they're scaled or measured usually in the japanese agricultural standard some scaling system then the movement of those logs is tracked and so that is a focus just on export customers you know, one of the things that can happen is ports are often very constrained places as far as space. What we wanted to look at is what happens 
if we tag out in the forest. So to improve the export supply chains, but also to look at the opportunity to improve domestic supply chains, to pass on some of the benefits that the exporters get to domestic customers. What technologies did you look further into? The top three were radio frequency ID tags, inkjet printing, and a punch code technology. If you're familiar with any of those options outlined by Glenn, it's likely to be the radio frequency identification or RFID technology due to its prevalence in the supply chains of all manner of industries. By attaching small computerised tags to any item, but in this instance to logs, there is the potential to store all manner of useful information about the logs. RFID tags, we're up there as a method where the technologies are already there for reading the tags, but part of the problem becomes the cost of the tag and also, in some cases, the ability to read tags because... RFID is electronics-based technology. Electronics don't like water. Logs are 50% water. The inkjet printing, this is a spray-on system. There are commercial products out there now that provide an inkjet printing solution for the stand level. So a unique number for a stand, but not a unique number for a log. So the technology that looked the most promising punch code technology. Mm -hmm. Punch code is like a branding hammer. What's new is that whereas a branding hammer was always fixed, in this case, the symbols on the branding hammer can change. And having a number of symbols, then combinations of symbols allows uh, 280 trillion logs to be uniquely tagged before they've got to start over again and that technology is not going to be on a hammer it's going to be on equipment that fits on a harvester head there's a a international interest in what's being done and all, all of these countries working on slightly different aspects of it we will have learnings that Um, help each other. Glenn went on to tell Georgia about another aspect of the research conducted as part of this project, this time focusing on log loading. So we'll be hearing a bit more from Glenn later in the episode. Another area the team wanted to observe was the impact of the debarking and drying of logs. During trials held in southeast Queensland and southwest Western Australia, the impacts on pine log stacks of debarking and drying were observed. This aspect of the research focused on how moisture content in pine log stacks, as well as sap stain incidents, were impacted by factors including debarking, storage location, season and time passed since harvest. Dr Helen Narung of the Forest Industries Research Centre at the University of the Sunshine Coast oversaw this element of the research. And Sam had a chat with her to get an understanding of her processes and her findings. My role in the project was looking at the impact of debarking and drying. Particularly interested in was the colonisation of the log stacks by insects and blue stain fungus. For anybody unfamiliar with the term, blue stain or sap stain is a blue, black or grey discoloration of the timber and although it has no impact on the pulp yield 
energy or mechanical properties, it does increase permeability and reduces timber value due to the impact on its physical appearance. Basically, we had three different treatments of logs in a container, logs out of a container in the shade and logs out of a container in the sun. So we took a sample at felling and then we took samples every two weeks up to two months. And at each of those samples, we measured the moisture content and the density and the amount of bark that was retained on the bark on ones and the blue stain amounts and the colonisation by insects. And we repeated that in each of the four seasons to see the effect of harvesting time on those parameters as well. I noticed that you mentioned moisture content as being one of the key measurements. Could you tell me a bit more about the significance of moisture content in this context? Moisture is mass, which is cost for hauling. So the the haulage costs are higher because they're based on mass, not on volume. So a log that is drier and a log that doesn't have its bark on it is going to weigh less and cost less to haul than a log that is fresh and wet and has the bark retained on it. So on the face of it, yeah, let's take the bark off and let's leave them in the field to dry out. I feel like you're about to tell me that there is a downside to that approach. At, at the cost of the, the decrease in the mass, you've got the colonisation by insects and blue stain. So what can the knowledge or the insights gained through conducting this research actually be used to do? Like, How could they potentially be a benefit for the industry? Blue stain influences the, the price and the market access and the end use. And it also influenced the moisture content. So there was really strong and consistent relationship between the amount of blue stain and moisture content. So the more blue stain that there was, the lower the moisture content was. But the things that we can have a bit more control over are the time since harvest. So the longer that they sit around for after they're harvested, the higher the colonisation rates are or the higher the, the severity of blue stain is. It was influenced by debarking and the amount of bark damage as well. So that's sort of related to harvest and haulage practices. So the longer that they sit around for and the rougher that the logs are treated. So whenever bark's damaged, that gives a spot for blue stain to get into. And then blue stain was also influenced by the number of insects that were around. So I think that's where the seasonal effect comes in as well because there's fewer insects in the, in the colder months. And so what were some of the other key findings that resulted from this research? Uh, Just a better understanding of the importance of getting things out of the forest quickly. So that that seemed to be one of the major things that they can, that that could change, that that's something you can have some control over. Debarking, I think there's a market for for bark. So, you know, they're not that keen on debarking in in the forest, either as a mass loss or as a protecting, because the the hybrid logs that were colonised with beetles a lot faster if the bark was left on them. Right. So, you know, there's, there's some arguments for debarking in the forest because you've got your reduction in colonisation and your reduction in mass, but bark actually has a market as well. And different harvested, we, we did another study just with a couple of different contractors and the way that they were handled as well, like the type of harvesting equipment that they used impacted yep. on the amount of blue stain as well. So they're all things that the forest industry can have some control over. 
As part of the project, the research team constructed a model that allowed for the economic evaluation of alternative debarking locations and anti-sap stain treatment locations, as well as drying locations and drying periods for three tree species. A key finding was that the best treatment combinations in economic terms differed between seasons and species. Another consideration made by the researchers was based around the reality that measuring logs stacked on trucks can be a time-consuming, expensive and inaccurate process. Poor measurement not only impacts revenue, but could also affect the commercial relationships of the forest grower. A preliminary study determined the accuracy of automated computer vision measurements for logs on trucks. These estimates were then compared with traditional manual measurement methods. Dr Maurizio Acuna, the Senior Research Fellow at the Forest Research Institute at the University of the Sunshine Coast, led this aspect of the multifaceted project and has this to say on his findings. It's how we measure volume from truckloads. It's trying to use technology, in this case, computer vision algorithms to actually detect logs on trucks and uh, specifically determine the diameter of the logs is because, uh, for example, in New Zealand and, uh, and Australia, when we export logs for measuring purposes, you know, the logs are measured using the Japanese rule. And the Japanese rule uses the small end diameter of the logs and the length of the logs to, to calculate the volume. So at the moment, all those measurements are done manually by people you know, using calipers, using tapes, you know, which is, uh, you, you can imagine, is time consuming, is labor expensive. So many organizations in the Southern Hemisphere are trying to test different technologies to be able to actually detect logs in real time using uh, photos, computer vision algorithms, uh, laser technology. You had much more accurate sort of measurements uh, and, you, and also you're reducing costs. This technology and algorithm can also be used to measure the volume of stack logs. So logs are at the roadside. Actually, there's a number of uh, commercial solutions already on the market. However, I want to develop something that is more tailored to our species, right a pine, eucalyptus nidens and eucalyptus uh, globulus. That sounds like it would make complete sense. So what would be the next step? in that case. And the next step in this research will be, I'm going to have a master's student coming from Europe to do research in this space. And uh, we will continue doing some research with uh, a company here in Tasmania, Forico. The next step will be to actually uh, um, improve our algorithms. Uh, this time I'm going to use uh, uh, deep learning, so artificial intelligence algorithms, to be able to develop more accurate uh, predictions. My preliminary result from the other algorithm, from the, the, the previous algorithm, was uh, quite good. But still, there are some issues, especially with some logs that are not perfect uh, circles. You know, you, you can see some, some of the logs have very oval faces. In that case, you know, predictions are quite, you know, sometimes we had big errors in that situation. So we have to develop something more intelligent. And what might that look like? The idea would be to have a software to uh, load the software in a tablet or in a mobile device. You can go to the forest, take pictures, and in real time, you will be able to have uh, a good estimate of the volume. Earlier in the episode, Georgia spoke with CEO of GE Murphy & Associates, Glenn Murphy, about the tag, track, and trace elements of this project. 
Uh, Glenn went on to tell Georgia about another aspect uh, of the project that he was involved with, uh, which focused on the topic of log loading. What initiated this element of the project? For export supply chains, what happens at the port is a very um, important cost component. One of the things when we talk about load rates to start with is that uh, the ports, if you ask them what their load rate is, of course, always tells you what the, the design rate or the maximum load rate is. And then there's things that have to be taken off of that in any supply chain. There are little things that, that go wrong. This project, there were a number of things that we were sure. interested in. What was the uh, variability in wood chip loading rates okay. at different ports around Australia? and what sort of things might be affecting those loading rates. So the number of things that we looked at is we looked at obviously the just what was available in the literature as far as variability was concerned in Australian ports. We also we used a interview technique. So we visited a number of ports and asked them what techniques they used and what loading rates did they have for ships. And then the third approach that we used, and we were extremely lucky with this as far as I'm concerned, is one of the companies that we approached had been looking at different ways to load ships, so different uh, techniques, for I think it was about eight years. And they'd kept records on what the load rates were and what equipment they'd been using. You could imagine being a researcher and saying, I want to look at this. And I step in and I look at a ship being loaded. It might be four, five, six days to load that ship. And I've spent six days to gather one data point. So to have a large data set was was very valuable. And what will these key findings uh, allow us to do? So some of the things that we found that uh, affected the load rate was the species being loaded. Then there's the different ports have equipment that's designed to load at different rates through improving the understanding of what variables affect loading rates. Then we can make changes to improve that productivity. So what is the next step for this project? We were looking at two things. One of them is what sort of productivity was there with different approaches to loading? What did we have to do to gain that productivity? And what are some of the benefits? One key area Glenn and his team looked at during this element of the work was the potential for the use of containers when loading logs, which he went into detail about during his chat with Georgia. When you've got containers, you can stack them one on top of the other and you might go up four or five uh, containers high, which is a lot higher than you can stack logs. But there is an imbalance in trade when it comes to the use of containers. And so what happens around the world is there are ships that carry empty containers from one point to another to try and get those empty containers back to places that Mm. they can be filled. That means if you can put something in a container, that saves shipping companies some cost. 
One of the other things is when it comes to unloading a ship, that uh, unloading logs requires uh, specialist equipment that's focused around logs. All sorts of goods get shipped in containers. So you can ship logs in containers to ports that you can't ship logs to because they don't have the equipment for logs. So if you're a log seller, you have the opportunity to supply different markets and you have the opportunity to supply small volumes for niche markets. One of the things that is interesting is that there's a whole pile of equipment and technology set up for that and load rates as a result are fast. And one of the comparisons we did is once logs were inside containers, how many cubic meters could we load per hour if logs are in containers versus if they were individual logs? It's something like six times. Another part of the log loading was now how long does it take to load a log into a container? And we looked at three case studies for that the one in Queensland one in Newcastle one in Melbourne they were using slightly different pieces of equipment slightly different techniques we had a look at what the different load rates were and what the effect was Mm. and so then I guess those insights and results are going to be giving you data around the different impacts and factors that go into the loading process which I then guess you can determine what practices are the most appropriate and will give you the better results. Is that is that correct? Yes, yeah, absolutely. And in, in some cases, it was uh, lower cost equipment with a different system. Productivity mightn't have been the same, but the economics is different. Or in some cases, it was specialist equipment that could load containers faster, but, but the economics weren't always in favour. But that's what this information um, can help with. And now some final words from Dr. Mohammed. The main outcome of the project is about sustainability to me. So we were able to reduce the cost of wood export. We are improving the productivity of, uh, of handling, transportation and shipment. Once we improved the productivity, we were able to reduce the emissions. But because heavy machineries are are applied to load, unload, transport. So once we get the productivity high, so it means lower emissions, we also applied less chemicals to improve the quality of the wood and also to prevent the insects uh, impacting the wood uh, negatively, uh, lower environmental impacts. This is a really vital project for the industry. Looking closely at all the necessary steps across the supply chain to find the best and most efficient solutions will yield endless benefits for the entire industry. It certainly seems that way. It will be fascinating to watch and see how much of this valuable evidence is put into practice and the impact it makes. As always, thank you to our guests for sharing their knowledge and insight on this fascinating project. And if you'd like to learn more about any of FWPA's current or upcoming projects, simply visit www.fwpa.com.au. And that's just about it for this episode of Wood Chats. We'll look forward to chatting with you again next time. Bye.